Hi everyone, Hugo Bowne Anderson here. And in this episode of Vanishing Gradients, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Peter Wang, CEO and co-founder of Anaconda, a creator of PyData, Bokeh, Data Shader, a student and teacher of the human condition, and in Peter's words, a steward of a large colony of blacksmiths making tools for the revolution, the data revolution, Hugo. It's a cybernetic revolution. And you'll hear him say that to me in the course of this interview. So today, I'm actually launching part one of my conversation with Peter, and we'll soon release the second part. In today's conversation, Peter and I jump into many of the technical and sociological beginnings of Python being used for data science, a history of the space, of the Conda distribution, of PyData, and of NumFocus, among many other things. Peter and I talk about the emergence of online collaborative environments, particularly with respect to open source, and attempt to figure out the moving parts of PyData and why it has had the impact it has, including the fact that many core developers were not computer scientists or software engineers, but rather scientists and researchers building tools that they needed on an as-needed basis. We also talk about the challenges in getting adoption for Python and the things that the PyData stack solves, those that it doesn't, and what progress is being made on both fronts. Now, people who've listened to me podcast for some time may have recognized that I'm interested in the sociology of the data science space more generally, and I really considered speaking with Peter a fascinating opportunity to delve into how the Pythonic data science space evolved, particularly with respect to tooling, but not only. And this is, I mean, it's because Peter had a front row seat for much of it, but on top of that, it's the fact that Peter was one of several key actors in the space at various di different points. As I mentioned, Peter is a, a student and teacher of the human condition, and I wanted to allow Peter's inner sociologist room to breathe and evolve in this conversation as well. Now, what happens near the end of this chat is slightly experimental. For a bit more context, Peter is a deep, broad, and occasionally hallucinatory thinker, and I wanted to explore new spaces with him, so I hope you get something out of the experiments we play as we begin to discuss open source software in the broader context of finite and infinite games and how open source software is a paradigm of humanity's ability to create generative, nourishing and anti-rivalrous systems. And by anti-rivalrous, we really mean things that become more valuable for everyone the more people use them. But we do need to be mindful of finite game dynamics, for example, those driven by corporate incentives, co-opting and parasitizing the generative systems that we build. Uh, so I'd like you to keep that in, in mind. These are all considerations Peter and I delve far deeper into in part two of this interview, which will be the next episode of Vanishing Gradients, in which we also dive into the relationship between open source software, tools, and venture capital, among many other things. But hey, that's enough out of me. Let's jump in and welcome to Vanishing Gradients.
Hey there, Peter, and welcome to the show. Hi, Hugo. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. We've been having uh, many conversations about data and many other things for years, so it's really exciting to bring a conversation to the public. So currently, you are CEO of Anaconda. That's right. And... I would love to hear a bit about how you got into data in the first place and your journey to what you're doing now. All right. How detailed. <laughs> do we have a little brief one and then you ask questions or should I get... Let's do that. That's a great idea. Great. My educational background, my degree is in physics. As a scientist, basically, and a student of the sciences, I was always involved in data. But then when I got, went into the into industry, my work was doing computer programming and software development. And I, I wrote some software. And then I went into consulting using the scientific Python tools in the early 2000s and there was uh, it was a lot more engineering simulation things like that but then you know went from numerical computing and scientific computing that is very adjacent to then data data modeling data processing and as python got pulled more and more into like in, in finance fintech and certain other areas it started getting pulled more into business oriented tasks that actually is how i got into more of the modern data analysis kind of stuff and yeah it really was a journey from scientific computing and numerical computing into sort of the land of SQL and the land of BI tools and all these kinds of things. Why did you leave research? Well, I was never really in it. So I graduated as an undergrad like in 99, and there was just so much excitement happening around computers and software. And I had always been a, a coder and a computer nerd throughout college and everything. So I decided to go and just get a job in software development. And this was, so 99, this was around the time Travis was working on NumPy? Yes, but I didn't know him at the time. And no. I actually, I only barely started using Python as a curiosity, as a nights and weekends thing. I was coding C plus for the most part during my first few years in industry. But then in 04 is when I started doing scientific. I found this like dream job. I get to use my science stuff. I get to write in Python. I really fall in love with Python at that point. And so that's when I started working um, at a company called Enthought, which is also here in in Austin. And I did a lot of consulting and whatnot there. Great. And that did you meet several Brian, Vandevern, and Travis around that, that time? <laughs> Lots of actually, yeah. So Travis, so the one of the founders of Enthought and the CEO was Eric Jones, who was a co-author of with Travis. So it was Travis, I think Piaru and, and Eric Jones created SciPy back in like the 99, 2000 time. And Enthought still runs the, the SciPy conference. Is that They is that do, yep, 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 yep. They do, you know, consulting around scientific data, Python kinds of stuff. It's a, a going concern. And they got a lot of really smart people there. And Travis and I met, so Travis joined Enthought in 07. And then some of the other people that we would later work with at Anaconda or slash Continuum Analytics, we met when we were collaborators at, at Enthought. And so this was around the time perhaps... John Hunter was working on Matplotlib, Fernando Perez was working on iPy. It seems like there are a bunch, seems like mm -hmm. there was some magic in the air, man, or there are a whole bunch of... Magic is everywhere. Magic is everywhere, is. Hugo. Magic is everywhere, and it is, and, and what happened in the 2000s, there was a really wonderful global collaboration happening around open source scientific Python. That's really the truth of it. And it was the result of several things happening. Open source software development, we, you know, people were using SourceForge, CVS, Subversion, starting to become Subversion. But this is prior to GitHub. 
right? So we had mailing lists and people would meet mm. on mailing lists. People would show up with on the mailing list saying, hey, I built this cool little project. You could email tables to people, right? You could, but there were some places that you could, we were not sure. Neanderthals, okay? Yeah. <laughs> there were places where one could host files, even several <laughs> megabytes in size on the internet. No, but the interesting thing was the human ecology of it. And I, I think we'll probably be talking about that quite a bit mm. over the course of this discussion. Absolutely. These movements are really the result of lots of individual people going the extra mile, doing, really putting their, putting their, their heart and soul into it. So for instance, we would do the sci-fi conferences. We would have once a year out in Pasadena at Caltech. And uh, a guy there, Michael Avazis, was able to organize for us and get us the use of the space and have this really wonderful venue for us, a uh, hundred or so, 120, whatever, how many people it was, to go out there. And so much collaboration and sharing happened there. And a lot of the people who are now considered, you consider them like OG, PyData type people, people who started lots of things on their own, they were all kind of joining the community at that time. So like Greg Wilson with Software Carpentry. I remember when he first showed up in the in the community. And then Gael, as he was starting and getting working on the Scikit Learn and the and actually Stefan Vanderwald as well, Scikit Image and whatnot. Like all a lot of these different people were all pulled together into this nexus of collaboration. They were all working on different questions as well in different fields, but they were all my understanding, or a lot of them were building tools for stuff they needed to do on a daily basis. And this uh, necessity is the mother of invention, mm -hmm. but also there's an economy. I think part of what made this software, this open source software ecosystem so different is that there's an economy of time, which is everyone, no one going into this open source community really was thinking about, I'm gonna go and build a software empire around these like Python scripts I'm writing. It was more like, oh my God, I've got to write these scripts to do this data processing so I can like maybe try to get tenure. And so that made us that people really basically did as much as they needed to, but no more, and really would let someone else take the ball. And so it became a relay race out of necessity, not necessarily by design. This is my sort of anthropological lens looking back on it. Yeah. But it's, it's, maybe it's a just so story, but it fits pretty well, which is that everyone working on these things, they were building tools that they needed to wield in anger. They didn't have a lot of time to sit and polish and because you get a software nurse together, an open source thing, working on just software projects for software's sake, there's a ton of bike shedding. It's so much, oh, what if we do this? And if we do that and we abstract this and we create this like super generic framework for doing yada. These are like these scientists and researchers, they don't have time for that. They're gonna learn just enough of this module or that technique to do this, th these things and boom. And so I think that actually led to a really interesting cellular and modular innovation landscape. So things had to work well with other things. You wouldn't have someone coming along saying, this part doesn't work and that part I like, but I don't like this other thing. Let me build a whole cloth, complete replacement for all five of these things. So I can be like the Ubermensch of this ecosystem. No one was doing that. Like it was just, no one had the time. And that was really great. Was it difficult to establish a shared foundation? Was it difficult to establish a shared foundation? It was work. Mm. It was definitely difficult. It was work. A great example is the NumPy and numeric, sorry, the NumArray and numeric split, which Travis healed over with NumPy in 2005 or six. Mm. But then some of the things that we don't have a shared foundation for, and still to this day don't, are around plotting, except Matplotlib, of course, is the one that everyone uses. But then when it doesn't quite do what you need to do, then there's 15 things you could go use. And so there's some of these things where some shared foundation things did get built and it, they took a great deal of effort. It was very difficult work and nuanced work. And then other cases, we still don't have some shared foundation. Yeah. We just end up with a, 
abundance of riches. I'm the type of guy to usually make PSAs, but I will make one. If you rag on Matplotlib, but you use inbuilt pandas plotting methods or use Seaborn, you are using Matplotlib, okay? <laughs> so be very aware. Yes, one of the things that many people in the community learned was this really interesting thing about the difference between implementation and interface, mm. right? Part of what made this community great and part of the reason why the tools that were built out of this community got so much traction so quickly was because it was domain experts of one stripe or another taking a tool, a meta tool, which is the Python programming language, and creating artifacts that were fit for purpose. Not just fit for purpose for what they were trying to do, but fit how their brains thought about doing it. It'd be very difficult to write a spec that you could kick over to a Java programmer, some random Java programmer, to go and build something like NumPy. You really needed a bunch of numerical computing, scientific computing nerds who spent a ton of time in MATLAB and done some Fortran to make a thing like NumPy. This is, and this is just true across the board. If you look at so, so many of the different things, I, I think the, the thing that happened with these, to your point about like people gripe about Matplotlib and then they use these other things that still rely on Matplotlib, mm. a lot of projects ended up growing and as they grew and evolved, they realized they had a foundation and then they had an interface. And in fact, for the initial phase of the project, foundation and interface being together were fine but their engine and interface, let's say. But then as things progressed and they wanted people like the interface fit in people's heads, but then they wanted the engine to be more powerful. And that's then, the, then it was like, oh crap, we have to get actually really intentional about the software design of this thing. Yeah. And actually there's a really nice point in there that Matplotlib, NumPy, these types of interfaces allowed Python and PyData to convert a lot of MATLAB users. So like I used to teach in academia a, a great deal where MATLAB was used a lot. And these interfaces allowed me to go, hey, you can tweak this and we can port this over to Py Python pretty straightforwardly. Yes. And I would say that it, it was the re the result of that. Like why didn't it happen to Ruby or Perl? Could we have done it in Go or JavaScript? What, what a C plus template. There's amazing template libraries for doing array manipulation in C plus. Why wasn't it C plus? CERN and the, the higher energy physics community, they use a uh, root and all these things that are a gigantic C plus library. So there's a proof of existence that's possible. But what was it about the Python and these things and NumPy and SciPy and Matplotlib and all these things that made it? I think my conjecture is that that notation is actually a tool of thought to hark back all the way to the APL stuff. Notation is a tool of thought and, and like computer science people and programmers, I, I see myself as a very, very much an amphibian here. I am a programmer nerd. I love like programming stuff. I read Slashdot religiously throughout college. I'm a coder nerd with all the code mm. nerds, but I can also just switch over here and be a science nerd with the scientists and hanging out with both these different tribes. I know they're actually quite different. They're quite different. And the coder nerds, for them, syntax is, it doesn't matter. Syntax is something that Lexer deals with. And yet for all other mortals on Earth, syntax matters tremendously. And so but Python, by virtue of being somewhat readable, executable pseudocode, just had a natural leg up on stuff where you're one semicolon away from a segfault. So it, so it just was like a nicer language. And the fact that you could, it wasn't a write-only language or had an ethos of cleverness the way that Perl did, meant that it was easier for people to build on top of other people's stuff. And maybe there's only two or three elements like that that you really need. And it was also the right time. It came around at a time as the internet was always on, broadband was getting everywhere. You had people, a global community of people coming together. And then some of the people that, the other thing that, that helped all this come together was that the, the language was easy to adapt to the language of science, which is mathematics. 
So Travis, and he doesn't talk about this very much anymore, but in, in years past, he would really wax poetic about the fact that Python had a built-in comp numerical type. Yeah. Not a lot of languages have that. But if you're an electrical engineer trying to do some work, gosh, that's really cool that you've got a built-in complex complex numbers. And they're well thought out too. Like the, the Python core C Python language core dev people, not they were not really scientists or whatnot, although Raymond Hedinger has an engineering degree, I believe. And so he appreciates some of the numerical stuff. Tim Peters really understands a lot of numerical stuff. So he had some core C Python people who really got it and cared about designing that stuff well. And that was all it took for then people like Travis and others to then take it to the next level. I think several of these things coming together. And then the one, maybe the one last thing is the REPL. The REPL really made it look like just like I, I have to say, I love my HP 48, but I gave it up for Python. Like the, the REPL is my calculator now and has been for like 20 years. So for people who don't know what a REPL is, maybe you could tell us. So REPL is actually an acronym, R-E-P-L, read, eval, print, loop. And what it refers to is if you type Python at the terminal or if you fire up a kind of a Python interpreter and you see those little three carrots and you have an input, or if you use the Jupyter Notebook and you said in bracket one kind of thing, you can type a statement or you can type an expression, you hit enter, and it evaluates it, just like if you were using like an interactive calculator. Yeah. And if you're a Python person, this makes all the sense in the world. It's like, of course you would do this. But what's not appreciated perhaps is 20 years ago, if you're used to using things like C or C++ or Java, this is unheard of. And that was before JavaScript. You know, people, web programmers today, of course, expect this too. Every web browser has a built-in console. Yep. But Python was really maybe not the first language of the REPL by any means, but it was the one that really made that super popular for people. And it makes sense for data exploration, right? That's the thing. It's actually, I use it a lot as a programmer because I could try constructs. I could try writing for loops. And, and having a REPL to play around with, it actually encourages you to write smaller, more bite-sized pieces of functionality so you can import them into the shell, try them out. So you're unit testing little chunks of code as you go. Whereas as a C++ programmer, I would write a ton of code, a lot of code with the IDE helpfully auto-completing things and highlighting things and whatnot. And then I would run my tests and I would test like hundreds of lines at a time. With Python, I'm testing 10, 20 lines at a time. A very different way to build. And it's very natural in Python. But for, for your, you're right though, for data exploration, it's wonderful, right? It feels like you're flying an airplane through your data. And so that REPL aspect, and so that's why Fernando, when I say Fernando, I'm referring to Fernando Perez, the creator of a project called IPython, which then became the IPython Notebook, which now has become the Jupyter Notebook. So when he first started IPython, it was a weekend afternoon project to just get a slightly nicer interactive prompt for doing science and, and numerical work than the built-in Python prompt. Because the built-in Python interpreter REPL, it's really meant to execute lines as if you're writing code into a script. It should be no different than if you executed a script and you paste it into the prompt there. So in any case, I think those things, the fact that Python was nice and easy to read and you could write stuff that could, other people could extend, the fact that there were some nice primitives and nice affordances for the numerical and scientific community, and then the fact that you had this wonderful REPL, which is a glorified calculator, then anyone who writes a library or a module, they're now surfacing these things into a REPL that people can then use. It was a real, it forced you actually as a design point. This is a very important thing. You wanted to create a set of things for your library that people could load into the REPL and use. It wouldn't do you a lot of good if it was just a library and people had to read all these docu documentation and write a big old program in order to use it. You want to have some things that people could just pull in something and nicely explore and play with stuff. 
that was huge. That was like really huge. Humor me for a bit, and I, I just want to take us. I want to ask a kind of a sociological question. It's around the role of relationships in building such an ecosystem. So I think one, if I recall correctly, Wes McKinney, when he was building Pandas, considered John Hunter, who was working on Matplotlib at the time, a, a mentor and a friend and an in inspiration and would fly places to go and meet him and sit in a room together and build stuff together. So what is the role of relationships and, and having lunch and knowing people's families and all of these types of things in building this rich ecosystem? It was huge. And this is why I think like those early sci-fi conferences were such a big deal in that it fundamentally got people to, for those of us who had the privilege of being able to fly to Pasadena once a year, yeah. it got people really able to to see the, the humans behind the mailing list email addresses and messages. But, and I know that there's a, the human relationships are anchored in shared values. So the fact that it was a science community, you put any two scientists on earth together, regardless of language, race, creed, whatever kind of thing, scientists as a bunch, they have some shared values. There's a natural curiosity. There's an open, one would hope there's an openness to exploration on the ocean, big five sort of list of different things, temperaments. If you get scientists earlier in their careers, before they become jaded academics, there's a natural sort of openness and exploration and kind of curiosity. So when you put some of these people together, now they're building something together. And there's now a center of mass that forms. Hey, that does create, that center of gravity creates, it creates a field. It creates a gradient. People who are like total like prima donna assholes, they flame out of the thing, right? Because no one wants to work with them. And people who like are nice and work well with each other, there's a bonding force that kind of pulls that in. And, it, and we're just really blessed that so many of the luminaries in the community are not a-holes. <laughs> if you're like, Travis is a deeply humanistic person who cares a lot about community and others and mentorship, right? People like Fernando. That's the most important thing to Travis. I, I think I've always valued how, how much time he spends with people and listens to people. Yeah. The human aspect of the, it's not just, it's not code. It's, it's a human collaboration that produced some really great code. Yeah. And I wish people would look at that more than just, like, if you go to Hacker News, it's like this project, that project, this GitHub repo. And it's, you know, put all the code, source code is just bits on disk somewhere. It's the people. If you wiped all of it and you got the same people together, they would produce something just as great. But if you kept all of it and you replaced it with a bunch of a-holes, they would not go, it would just fly apart. Totally. So it's really that human ecology. Yeah. Very important. And I wanted to zoom in on something you said, for those of us who had the privilege to fly to Pasadena, this is actually an incredibly important point. Mm -hmm. I actually, there's a blog post by Juan Iglesias who works on Psychic Image mm -hmm. in which he talks about the importance of going to conferences. And it's an older blog post and there's a comment by, and I'll find this post and put it in the show notes, there's a comment by someone called Kathy O'Neill <laughs> on this post. And, and she responded and said, I, I think that's something like, I think that's great, but I'm a mother with two children. When I get time off work, I can't necessarily go to conferences. How can we be more inclusive? Something, and I may have butchered that, but that's the general takeaway. Mm -hmm. I think this is key to discuss now, particularly as we've seen in early Pi data, there was perhaps a lot more representation from men than women. That's one aspect of diversity we can consider. We saw that essentially blow up in some ways last year with a controversy around the NumPy paper. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how it was at the time, what type of progress we've seen since then, and how we can be more inclusive now. I think there are a lot of efforts underway to, to improve the situation. They have been for quite some time. And the Python community has actually been, I would say, fairly, like they've tried to lean into this as these issues are brought up. And as the, there was a general awareness over the last, I would say, probably 10 years, maybe even more than 10 years ago. So the PyData and SciPy folks have been part of that as well, trying to be more aware about inclusivity and 
One thing I will say is, yeah, it's a very nuanced topic because certain aspects of the communication systems, like it was all very English oriented. So the English mailing list, a lot of English speakers. You show up and you start, you have some broken English. You know, a lot of people show up on mailing list. They would say they would apologize for the English being broken. And I'm an immigrant to America and English is my second language. So I, I feel a lot of empathy for someone trying to post a technical question <laughs> on a mailing list in not their native language. And I, I always felt bad when I saw that because it's like, what are we doing to make these people feel bad that they have to apologize for like, we, we need to do something to make it so that's not so people don't feel like they have to self-censure in an opening in their emails. But but the point is, if you could speak English, though, didn't really matter where you were in the world. If you were making things of technical value and you had this similar technical values as other people on the in the mailing list or, or on that project, generally the contributions were welcomed. So in a certain way, for the folks that it touched, it wasn't. However, that network wasn't the network itself wasn't that inclusive because English speakers, people had internet access. So a lot of people in the global South did not have these kinds of opportunities. Those who did though, like for instance, the spider, which is a very popular project, it's been maintained by folks in Central America. And so there's other projects. I think um, you actually brought up Wes. There was a, I remember there was one time in the, the pandas, was it a sci-fi sprint or something where some of the pandas folks were just talking about this, like this like random Japanese dude that showed up and was pushing amazing commits. Like they had amazing PRs, they're fixing all these things. I'm like, who is this guy? And they all loved it. In a sense, it wasn't like, again, the network, if it could touch you and you had great things to contribute, it was very, it was quite open to contribution, but it wasn't intentional about growing the boundaries of that network. And also I think the challenge with PyData at that point was actually downstream of other challenges such as lack of gender diversity in physics for example, right? When you have a lot of people from certain STEM fields coming in to build tools, there's a downstream effect right. there. And that isn't to say there isn't a responsibility at all there, but it's trying to diagnose what happened several decades ago. Yeah, I think where these conversations, they, they are there are good and then there are less good ways to approach these discussions, right? And so I think when people get upset about certain of these issues, when they start making assumptions about, well, here's the outcome, Right. This is the output. I don't care what the transfer function was upstream of this. I'm mad about this outcome. Mm. And therefore, I'm going to assume bad intent or blindness or blah, blah, blah on the part of everyone here. That's not really a, a constructive way to approach the problem, especially when we go and you talk to those people and like everyone recognizes this is a problem. And so we are. So I think part of the thing that is important to to look at this is we should say, yes, there are certain there are, I guess, what's called like pipeline, right? That would be the, the pipeline theory that mm. there's a general like funnel of people come in here and then we need people here. And then there's ultimately the people who end up contributing are the result of a lot of other upstream segments of the pipeline. And so the lack of gender diversity is the result. A large portion of it is the result of lack of gender diversity upstream here. Yeah, That's not to excuse the outcome, yeah. but that's just to say, let's try to apply the appropriate solutions at the appropriate stages of the pipeline to fix all of the different parts of the pipeline. And I think that's the, where I've seen this go sideways is when someone says it's a pipeline problem, then someone else immediately says, you're just trying to excuse your own role in it. And then it just becomes this very confrontational thing that it doesn't lead to any better outcomes, really. I think the objection it isn't just a pipeline problem or it, it is totally valid. And we need to diagnose a lot of different aspects in order to perform interventions. I'd also encourage listeners to check out Rachel Thomas's post. If you think women in tech is just a pipeline problem, you haven't been paying attention, which is a wonderfully thoughtful piece on these ongoing concerns. And I'll link to that post in the show notes also. But I will say, for instance, when I went to this, there's also 
to the point about inclusivity and kind of, I would say, maybe an, a Eurocentricism or a, a kind of an American sort of centric viewpoint on some of these things. When I did, I've, I've gone to India a few times to speak to data conferences there, PyData or, or PyCon India. And what I was always impressed by was a much, much healthier gender uh, balance in terms of practitioners of the data science stuff. Like in India, I actually think the female practitioners a number the, the male practitioners in some of the places I was looking at. So it's an interesting thing to see that what can parts of the West learn from places that are doing this a lot better. And I think there's a, there's definitely, I would say like the community, there was a point where, oh, what was it? We were at a PyCon and someone submitted a pull request or started a GitHub issue on SciPy about not using the Lina image as like a default image or having that be the thing. And you can imagine there are technical communities where that would have been like, a rant from like the BDFL about, oh my God, and like all this stuff. But I remember where I was there because Travis was uh, Travis was next to me and we're looking at this issue or this came up and Travis was looking at it. He's like, oh yeah, we should totally, we should totally remove that. I was like, yeah. we should fix that. It wasn't even like a discussion. I was like, yeah, yeah we need to fix that. Great. And so I think this is what I mean, like the, that there are, there is in the community, in the Python data community, there's a lot of willingness and a lot of good people with good intentions. I do hope that we make strides in improving this for sure. Sadly, it's it's taken a long time. Yeah, I think it's so. a long time. I'm interested in what happened next in PyData. And I, I don't have a specific question, but I, I suppose it, it would be around the formation or the beginnings of the Conda distribution. Yeah, so interesting story there. We started, we, we had essentially in the at the end of the 2000s, we were seeing a lot of demand for Python, for scientific Python tools in finance. And as we're doing consulting, as we're looking at what people are doing with it, it became clear to me that number one, the scientific tools that we had and some of the data processing tools were absolutely killer for some of the modeling that they need to do and a lot of the statistical processing. But it was also clear to me that the other tooling that there was a lot of other tooling needed, data manipulation stuff, really treating tabular data structures in a first class way that wasn't NumPy record arrays, SQL interfaces, the web was a thing. People were really wanting to build web interfaces. And the story for building web interfaces in Python, especially with data, was like not great. Plotting on the web with the Python data stuff was not great. And so there were a lot of these things that need to get papered over. And what I really, not papered, they need to get fixed, not papered over. Yeah. So what I realized was, I said, look, I think there's a huge opportunity here, but we're not going to get it by trying to just piecemeal open source, like consulting where kind of things, trying to take 10 years to creep there. Like we have to actually do something much more deliberate and intentional to condense and coalesce this emerging data analysis stuff, business data processing data analysis around Python. And so we started the company to do some of those things, to actually explore other ways of funding. Can we sell products? And then take those the product revenue and put that into open source development. And then also, Travis was very passionate about, about again, like you said, about community. And so he wanted to make sure that the open source projects in this ecosystem had a nonprofit to be housed at. They could get funding. They could just, it would be housed at a nonprofit. Because mm. that was one of those things that was actually, it's one of those, if you think about govern, open source governance is not a topic that the vast majority of users of open source ever care about. But anyone who makes open source has been doing it for more than two or three years they really appreciate how important governance is, especially if your project gains steam and you want to get funding for it and whatnot. That governance stuff is critical. So Travis wanted to have uh, a shared infrastructure for all these different projects. So that's why we created NumFocus. 
And then, and I, I'm me, like I love people. I love hanging out with people. And so I, I said, look, I think we should also, as a way to accelerate and catalyze this effort, create a series of meetups and conferences and events around just Python for data analysis. And let's call it PyData. And I didn't steal that title, by the way, from Wes's book because it hadn't been written yet. Mm. So he wrote Python for Data Analysis, the O'Reilly book that everyone's got. Yep. But prior to that, I said, look, we should call, we should create, you know, I registered the domain pydata.org, put together this workshop that, at Google in March of 2012. We got a lot of people together and it was clear that this was a interesting thing. And we should keep doing more of these. And then in the fall, we then did a real, we did a conference. And so we did, it was really, it was great. So then the PyData conferences started happening. And then now we have them all over the world and we have meetups all over the world. And then that has been a critical part of getting the community pulled together around the usage of Python for data science to the point now where the numerical and scientific Python stuff is almost like the stuff that gave birth to all of these things. That's a smaller conference, right? SciPy is attended by a lot of really great people, but it's a smaller conference relative to the large panoply of Python data conferences that are out there. Exactly. And so how about the distribution and the package manager? Oh, yeah. Let me talk about that a little bit. So at that first conference, it's a really, it's a funny story that's not told very often, but at the time, the biggest challenge that we saw to getting adoption for Python for data analysis, well, there were two challenges. Number one, in the open source world, everyone thought R should be it. So when I went to like a Strata conference or to other kind of big data conferences, big data was really the big term at the time. Mm. I would go to big data conferences and people would assume it was going to be R. And I would say, I'm using Python or I'm interested in talking to Python people and they look at me weird. And then the other thing was everyone was completely obsessed with Hadoop and big data. So MapReduce, big yeah. data, MapReduce. And so at this first Python data conference, I thought we should have something about MapReduce, right? Like we should probably have something. And there were Pythonic MapReduce frameworks. There's one lesser known one called Disco written by a guy named Ville Tulos. <laughs> and we had one of our, we had one of our, one of my friends, he actually been using it for some stuff. And so he, he volunteered to give a talk on Disco. If you want to do Pythonic MapReduce, you could use Disco to do it. And then I looked closely at Disco and I was like, wait, this is a pile of Erlang in the middle of this, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with Erlang. It's a great language. But at that time, in 2012, people still were having trouble installing like Matplotlib and SciPy. It was very difficult to install on Windows. On Mac, it would be like, what are the build instructions? Now, when, and on Linux, people could mostly RPM or AppGet or something and get it. But it was still like, it was a mess, okay? So I sat there at that workshop. I was sitting in the back with Travis, watching my friend Chris Mueller give a talk on Disco, and I'm like, if we can't even get people SciPy 10 years later on a reliable basis, how the hell are we going to ship people Erlang? Like, how's that yeah. going to work? And so I said, Travis, I think we should create like just a Python distribution focused on data analysis, Python for big data. So like a big snake, like Anaconda, let's call it Anaconda. And that was the origin of that literally in a talk on Disco was the like two seconds, I looked over at Travis and, and proposed that idea. That is fantastic. Because, of course, I've been chatting with Ville recently, and you told me there was a story, <laughs> which I haven't That's heard the yet, story. to tell him. So he'll either hear this live or I'll tell him before we put it live. <laughs> so that's amazing. And you were then Continuum Analytics. Right. Now, of course, an, a, a, Anaconda. Mm -hmm. And what are you excited about? Or what are you up to at Anaconda at, at the moment? Lots and lots of things. We started the company to try to push Python for data analysis. I think we succeeded in doing that. Yes. One of the ways we succeeded in doing that was, of course, creating the community dynamics and putting the you know, conferences together, creating some pieces of open source that have really been helpful for visualization, performance with Numba. And of course, the most important thing, I think, is getting the software into more people's hands. So the Anaconda distribution, Conda packages, those were really important parts of doing all that. But the vision was to empower the vision wasn't to be a package manager for data science software. The vision was to empower domain experts around the world 
everyone to be able to use computers to answer questions, right? Our vision as a company is still to create a world where people are empowered, right? To ask questions of data and to think about the world and understand the world better because of with data. So that means school children. That means school children in whatever country, uh, whatever means. They should have access to the very same high quality tools that the most, the wealthiest hedge funds have. Do your kids write Python code yet? My son does. Yes, he's eleven. My daughter does not yet. Okay, she's only seven. The other thing, I don't. Maybe you can't say this. I, I, I don't know. You've also. Anaconda and Continuum has historically funded a huge amount of open source development. Dask is incredibly close to my heart. You began Dask and funded a great deal of it, funded people to develop Pandas. There are a lot of different parts of the ecosystem where you put a lot of resources and capital behind. We ourselves started several different projects. We started uh, Numba, of course, Conda, the package manager. We st- And then the Conda ecosystem, there's Bill, there's a bunch of other tools around Conda. What about the data shader stuff? So there's visualization tools. So the Bokeh, web visualization stuff, and then data Data Shader, which is a large data visualization and visual statistical processing system. Then we mentioned Numba. There's other tools like Intake, FSSpec. There's lesser known things like Odo, well-known things like Dask for distributed computing. The Blaze ecosystem back in the day. All of these things came out of vision Travis and I had called Blaze. So you, you remember that. We had this vision of actually trying to fuse the what I call the iron triangle of computation, data representation, algorithmic expressions, and then compute infrastructure, meta compute, trying to fuse all these things together into one system. It was too big and mm. we were just too distracted in a lot of different things to make it all happen. So different people took different parts of this and made different things, right? So the some of the expression stuff became uh, num- well, f- folded into the number project, which is already kind of at the time ongoing project. Some of it ended up in Dask, right? So the meta compute stuff and distributed compute, unified scale up, scale out, that all went into Dask. Matt Rockland looked at all this server and he was like, that's a really big vision. I'm just going to write a distributed computing system. <laughs> and he went and did that. Yeah, in 16 lines of code. Also, I, I went back and looked at the first commit last year. It's not a lot to start with. Yeah. It, it started, it had a humble beginning. Yeah, that's a humble man. In his own way. (laughs) And then on the data stuff, that ended up a variety of different things came around. Phil Cloud wrote a project called Odo to try to do data transformations, the schemas or schema transformation. And he's been fundamental in Pandas as well. So he was a Pandas maintainer. That's right. And then that data stuff, the data corner of the Blaze Iron Triangle, the FS spec work that is in Dask and now in Pandas that Martin Durant worked on as a way of abstracting file systems, but then also Intake, which is a virtual data catalog system that is starting to get more adoption. That kind of came out of that portion of the vision. So eventually, Travis and I joke about this, me over beer and him with a Diet Coke, we joke about the, eventually these will probably converge into something in the cloud as a, a part of the Blaze vision. But yeah, these projects all came out of that. But we also funded a number of projects that were already ongoing concerns in the ecosystem. So we funded Pandas Development for a while. We funded Scikit-Learn for a little bit. We funded actually the Jupyter Lab project started a little bit at uh, Continuum slash Anaconda. And then it was also funded by Bloomberg, Two Sigma, and other people as well. But the maintainers were there. And also we funded Spider, the Spider developers for a while, and aspects of Jupyter, some Jupyter extensions and things like that. So we have done a lot of open source over the years. In all honesty, the way that the whole community has engendered further community is what drew me in initially. And I don't actually, I don't know if we've talked about ever, or you recall the, the first time we met, but it was at a 
Pi Data Meetup in New York. I just moved to New York City and I was really excited. I was like, oh, I, wanted, I want this city to take control of me. And I'd, I'd met Jim McCarthy and he was like, you should come, uh -huh. who was working for your sales. That's right, yeah. And he was like, you should come to this Pi Data Meetup. And I remember going and it was, you gave your data shader talk. It was Brian Granger and Tom Katz, something silly, and Tom Caswell, I think, speaking, something like that. And I just remember that the electricity in the room, and you, you gave the first talk and you definitely had this, energy, which was all encompassing. And I was like, this is a community I, I, I want to be a part of. That's great. I remember that. And it was, um, it wasn't it raining when we got out? I feel like yeah. it was raining. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah okay. was. Right. Yeah, it was a great, that was a fun meetup. Yeah, Jim, uh, Jim McCarthy is a good guy. So, right, there was, I, there's a lot of open source projects that we we did at the time. But to circle back to, to answer your question about what's going on in the Conda, yes. and that I'm excited about leaning, looking forward, what we realized is that the, the open source software foundation providing just getting open source software into people's hands and then getting into business users' hands, that's actually a really big lift. There's a lot of invisible work behind that that is really critical to ensure that the, the ecosystem is viable in business so that PyData users can go into businesses and get jobs doing Python data stuff and not have to say, drop everything, go learn SaaS. So there's a lot of work we do to try to get businesses feeling good about using open source. And a lot of that work, it continues. So we're continuing to do a lot of that work. And that takes a lot of energy that I think people sometimes don't appreciate. But then in terms of end user facing, practitioner facing tooling, we're doing a couple of different major things. So we're trying to actually build more of a community site to pull a lot of different users and a lot of different data science kind of beginners in. So they have a home. Right now, there's not really a home for data scientists. There's there's Twitter, of course, if you want discussions. There's Stack Overflow if you have questions. There's GitHub if you want to look at projects. And there's all sorts of different things. But one thing that we see is a lot of people download our software and they don't know what to do next. So we want to create at least a launching point for them to say, look, at least you, you start here ask some questions, find resources, and then go from there to wherever. So that's one of the things that we're really excited about building. That's called Nucleus, and we're adding more and more features into that as the months go by. And we'll add a link to Nucleus in the show notes as well. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, thank you. It's just anaconda.cloud. So okay. anyone who wants to, yeah. Yeah, it's also easy to type. So we're adding a team to help with maintaining and improving Jupyter. So right now, the Jupyter Classic Notebook is a little under-resourced, so we're trying to add some headcount there to just take care of that. But then also there's a, a desire to move folks to using Jupyter Lab as the future of Jupyter. And so implementing a good, almost like button-for-button -button UI clone of the Classic Notebook experience in Jupyter Lab, that's something that we're going to be putting muscle behind as well. So that's a fundamental tool that I'm really excited and hopeful that we can add good contributions there. And there's some, some new Viz, Viz projects, but some of the work that the team behind DataShader has been putting together is the Holoviz stuff, right? So there's Holoviz for doing easier specifications of visualizations, but then the panel and Lumen work for doing really nice, simple dashboarding application building. That's something that's been a dream of mine from the very beginning. It's a uh, huge gap. It's, it's a huge gap, R but it's a non-trivial. Right? R has Shiny, and we have had 80% of Shiny-like things yep. in like five different projects. Oh, I know. I know, yeah. But then as you try to push any of those, the last, the last 80%, it, everyone wants different things. And so it, there's a real sort of like long tail product design issue around this stuff. I think the work that that Philip and, and Jean-Luc and others there around panel and Lumen, what they're doing there, it seems to have, I think, 
cut a really nice design kind of point. So I'm really excited about that work. And then, yeah, an intake I mentioned earlier, right? It's a virtual data catalog. I think that's a problem that a lot of data scientists maybe don't think about too much until they get into business. And they get into business and they're like, oh, there's already, I've got data catalogs and I've got all sorts of different things and meta stores and all these things. So at some point between loading the Iris data set and then talking to like Dremio or Snowflake, somewhere in the middle, there's like a lot of intermediary needs where people have, they do shadow data management and that's where intake can come in and really help just up-level what people are doing and get help with a lot of like workflow pain points and quality of life issues. You've raised a very a super key point there because something I wanted to come around to, and this dovetails really nicely, is the SciPy and, and PyData ecosystem served a lot of needs of base, people in basic research and then in, in finance, clearly being adopted by a lot of industry at large, but it's not clear whether... These tools have solved, for example, the deployment story that a lot of businesses are thinking about now. So what gaps are there? And is the deployment story an important one? Yes, the deployment story is an important one. And the reason is because if your stuff doesn't get deployed, it you will always be stuck forever in like research toy experimentation land. Or insights or... Yeah, like you're going to be basically your output is a PDF, right? Or a PowerPoint. It's important to actually have the stuff be deployed. People want to deploy it. They really do want to have online learning. They want to have online training. They want to have... They want to see data-driven software actually accelerate their business, right? Whatever business it might be. So the desire fundamentally from the business perspective is there. What's not there is all of the people who manage IT infrastructure, who manage deployment and production processes for the last 20 some odd years in enterprise software development they really don't know how to think like data, sort of data-oriented people. And what I mean by that is that they have, for the most part, been software and infrastructure people, and they've let the data world be completely managed by the DBAs and enterprise data warehousing people. And so it's really two halves of a brain that then come together to then roll out things into production. And with machine learning, with data science kind of, things, you really, the data, the values, and the code commingle into what is correct, into what meets SLAs and and deployment response times, things like that. So you can't really handle the data and the code separately. You have to handle them together. And that's a new fusion kind of practice area that's not, that's emerging. Some people are good at it. Some people are really stumbling and, and fumbling with it. So I think that for the data science community to get to that level, it's gonna be it's hard because the software tools you build to aid in deployment are oftentimes very bespoke to your deployment environment. And everybody's deployment environment is different. And there's no sense in over open sourcing it because it's like, it's a pile of your Terraform scripts. How's that going to help anybody else in the world except you? And you probably don't want to show it to the world. So you probably got a lot of little weird hacks in there that you don't really want to show everyone. I think some things will have to emerge. And we, as a sort of outside sort of uh, tool builder that we've been tool builders for so long, I think we can serve a very useful purpose by bringing together those users, convening them, as we always do, putting a conference together or putting a workshop together and hearing from folks about what their pain points are and then seeing if we can't come up with some good solutions that holistically handle this. Now, we're trying to handle some of these things at just the software governance and software deployment level, but that's only one piece of the equation, like I said, right? I think one of the most important questions is what is the right abstraction layoff to, for 80% of people to, to be satisfied? I also think there are many vested interests. The fact that Kubernetes and Kubeflow has been adopted to a certain extent and is probably talked about 
maybe a bit too much is because we all live in the shadow of Fang as well, and Google in particular in this case. And the types of things that are used to solve Google scale problems are not necessarily the best things for you know the long tail of small to medium sized businesses out there. I think there's a there's that there's definitely. I think there's like, uh, when I think about open source, I care a lot about the human ecology behind the software. Actually, the, the licensing, the specific license, is it OSI approved or not? Is a source available? Is it what? Like that stuff is a little bit ancillary. For me, It I first and foremost look at who and what group of people are actually doing the exploration as to what they want to build, what's the right thing to build and how they build it. And so in this ecosystem around PyData and SciPy, it's usually been groups of users, right, ultimately, that come together. Groups of, like, uh, power users come together and self-service. This phenomenon, but that's, I wouldn't say it's unique, but that's a defining aspect, I would say, of this community. Sure. A lot of other communities don't really have that. They're totally, I think about some of the web dev communities, or, oh, this is Facebook's tool for front ends. Let's all use it. It's okay, that's fine too. Cassandra, Facebook threw it over the fence for everyone to use. And, and then and the Apache Zoo of tools, there's a different, there's a very commercial ethos there too, right? It's like, oh, this group that built this data tool at some fame company, they've now all left to take this Apache incubating project. They just raised $20 million from a VC and they're going to build like a something as a service around this tool. And that's a formula that works for them. And if the tool is useful for end users, that's fine. But that's not the move that generally happens in the PyData space. It's just not what has happened. And there's something about community participation about this, the way that we explore the landscape of possibilities, the way that we play, and this is going to get to maybe something we'll talk to later on in the conversation, the PyData community, that modularity and that like humble scoping concept, that has allowed it to be an infinite game. People can come in, set up camp on the edge of town, and there's always the possibility the town will grow to where you are. You don't have to go kick anybody else out of their condo move in and set up your like noodle shop. So there's a there's an infinite game aspect and it allows for the users to flow and user energy is ultimately not I wouldn't say the currency, but it's the thing that flows into projects and gets them credibility and gets them the energy to then continue growing. It's a necessary it's like the water or the oxygen in the ecosystem. But when you have these projects that come out of, of the companies, they're delivered like whole, just boom, it's dropped, it's ready, and you can use it. And of course, they're open for contributions. And it's the people shepherding these projects, I think Qflow was uh, Dave Aronchik, I think, who created He seems like a nice guy. Like these, There's nothing wrong with either the projects or the people. It's more of the ethos mentality and therefore the communities that emerge around some of these projects. And they will tend to, because people are trying to build companies around them or trying to withhold some features so they can charge for other features, there is much more of a finite game dynamic to them. And the finite game in two ways, finite game in the sense of extracting some aspect or finite game in the sense of being a little bit of a, a casino kind of dynamic for venture capitalists and for investors and whatnot. Part a bit more the difference between finite and infinite games, maybe a la James Cass or? Yeah, so the idea of a finite game is a game that has well-defined terminal win condition and there's only, there's only if for some person to win, someone else has to lose. And there's N number of dollars, there's N number of properties on a Monopoly board or in checkers. I win or you win. On chess, there's only so many moves, so many pieces, so many squares. And so many of the things that we encounter in the world, there's natural scarcity to them. And what humans do in lieu of actually killing each other is we set up 
finite games. We set up scarcity games and dynamics and competitions to see who, so we vie for the scarce resources. So there's a natural zero-sum mentality. If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose. Infinite games, on the other hand, is there are a few examples of, of, of things that we do that are infinite games. And the idea of an infinite game is that there isn't really a final win condition and there isn't, it, it can be multi-win. Yeah, one person can win, someone else can win. In fact, sometimes both people winning means they each get more, <laughs> right? Very few things in the natural world have this dynamic where when you give something away, you get more of it back. Like that doesn't happen. But in infinite game territory, in collaboration spaces, you have this dynamic, right? Travis Oliphant, by giving away the source code and opening it up, he got way more functionality back from the world. And all those people did it by joining in and giving their contributions too. It's a stone soup sort of thing. So it, the point of an infinite game is to keep the game going as long as possible. Natural language is another example, right? Where the right, we don't have a finite number of, of words we can say <laughs> or, 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 or syllables we can use. But also the more people who speak a language, it comes down to rivalry actually. The more people that speak a language, the more you share language with other people, the more you can collaborate hopefully and ideally. That's another term that is used, rivalrous versus non-rivalrous. And some things actually are anti-rivalrous. Yeah. Some things are anti-rivalrous. Could you give us a quick rundown of rivalry and why it's important to consider that when discussing open source software? Wow, that's a huge topic. So yeah, that. thank you for the question. I can try and you can correct me. <laughs> okay, you go for it, go for okay. it, yeah. Rivalrous is when oh, consumption by one user or consumer prevents simultaneous consumption by another consumer. So if I'm eating an apple, you you can't eat it. That's mine, right? Anti-rivalrous is when this condition doesn't exist. So broadcast TV is an example there where if I watch something, that doesn't stop you watching it. So that's non-rivalrous. Anti-rivalrous is that each additional person using something benefits more the other people using it. And hence, open source software, because more people it's are reporting bugs. Effects. And Yeah, exactly. Network effects are a class of anti-rivalrous effects. And, and rivalry doesn't have to be a finitude of, of a physical resource necessarily. It can be attainment of sorts. And so human brains, just our limbic systems, we're wired as primates, basically, to put status games in places. Wherever we roam, we put status games in place. And status games are fundamentally rivalrous. There's one head honcho, and there's not two of them. So if one person's head honcho, no one else can be the head honcho. So the dynamic of rivalry versus non-rivalry versus anti-rivalry, it shows up everywhere in life. And so the interesting thing about the modern world is we're moving so much of what's important to us is transitioning because of the industrial revolution and then the digital and, and information age. So much of what's important to us is moving out of a rivalrous mode or out of a mode where it must necessarily be rivalrous into a mode where it can be non-rivalrous. And then open source or Wikipedia or some of these other kind of crowdsourcing dynamics or crowdsourced artifacts, collaborations, whatever you want to call them, they're shining examples of what can be done if we really harness the power of anti-rivalrous things. I love it. I love it. I just want to add one thing that OSS is not only anti-rivalrous, it's non-excludable. So it's actually a public good. What I mean by that is that there's nobody that says, if you don't pay for this, you cut, you're excluded from using it. However, there are there. there's a darker aspect to some of these things. Please. Which is that there are always going to be, there's going to be finitude somewhere. And what modern kind of financial systems and investors look for is they look for returns, compounding returns, right? Compounding returns are an exponential curve. 
you don't really in nature, you don't get exponential curves. You don't get exponentially more oil out of an oil. You don't get exponentially more apples out of your apple orchard. You can't even get exponentially more energy out of a giant exploding nuclear fireball, right? The sun, you just yeah. get what you get. But if you create network effects of human beings and you put extractive elements in at every node, the more network effects oh, happen, the more you can get exponentials out of it. So here's the thing. Those who are intrinsically, as a fiduciary obligation, required to go and mine for exponentials, they will seek, like heat-seeking missiles, they will find places to put elements of finitude in and start extracting and pulling exponentials out of what could otherwise be anti-rivalrous, abundant, generative collaborations. Let's have a hypothetical in which there's a social network, which on the other side, I don't know, has an advertising platform that advertises to the people in the social network and encourages people to grow. For some reason, that also polarizes a lot of them. But let's say that was just in the incentive system of the algorithms that were set up. You actually have this anti, this beautiful anti-rivalrous organism growing, but you have some rivalrous finite game system preying on it and extracting all of the resources from it. It finds the finitude. It finds the finitude and ejects it in there, taps it out. And it, through that one little corruption, it's because the, the entirety of the problem with Facebook's, the kind of the, the things that they do that's, that's problematic, it hinges on that business model of requiring more and more engagement and it finds the finitude of human. So that's the interesting thing, that, but this ties right back to open source. Yes. Because, because you talk about non-excludability, here's the problem. Turns out APIs are excludable in a sense that if you and a bunch of you and all the other cool people are talking on podcasts about some API and I have an alternative library with a different API and nobody's using it, my thing will die on the vine. And this is actually a game that has been played by Fang and by corporate players. They essentially recognize that developer attention, just a social network, consumer attention, but developer attention, developer familiarity with APIs that's a finite resource yes. and that we can capture that. And we can capture it by dumping a ton of money into DevRel, dumping a ton of money into conferences, books, videos, all these things, teaching people how to use this stuff. And then once we've captured developers using this API, they're gonna use our API, not somebody else's API. And now it's an API battle, right? And acquiring communities like Kaggle, for example, the Google acquisition of Kaggle. I think is a, probably an example there. How well it's worked out for them if that's provided economic value for them. I think Kaggle is still Kaggle. So I don't Absolutely. think really ruined it but they're not it's... suggesting that it okay, brought it. okay yeah yeah but i do think it, it brought it into the google ecosystem in, in in some ways and got people working more on tpus or whatever it is but i think there's an absolute like from a strategy perspective someone sitting there looking at a spreadsheet saying yes this makes sense we'll pay like however much money because this gets us this community because developer attention is a scarce resource there are at the end of the day there are healthy competitions for rivalrous goods that happen. It's not all rivalry is intrinsically bad. The thing that I don't like is when I see the possibility for abundance, for generative kind of anti-rivalrous things happening, and then someone goes in and taps like that energy out using an extractive finite system. That's not so good. So that is the, I think around open source, and if we unwind the stack a lot of the ways back to this, uh, where I was first talking about finite game versus infinite game, the beauty of open source collaboration is that it is anti-rivalrous. The more you give, the more there is there, like it compounds. And so that's definitely been a dynamic that's helped the Python open source community now 
have so many libraries, so many tools, so many blog posts and tutorials on how to do just about anything. It is, it is, so Clay Shirky is probably like the most prolific author about crowdsourcing, the power of crowdsourcing. I'll include a link in the show notes, but everyone should read Here Comes Everybody at the very least. Here Comes Everybody. And he identifies the four four levels of, of crowdsourcing or collaboration. And he starts with me first collaboration. Then he talks about making it fit for other people who are interested in learning about what it is you're doing and then being able to accept their contributions. And at the, the very end, the, the final thing, I believe, was, what was it like addressing the fundamental economic limitations of like, so like ultimately crowdsourcing blows apart. It's, it, it resolves a market inefficiency. He actually does talk about this in economic terms. It's the Kosian ceiling or the Kosian floor. I can't remember which, but. The theory of the firm, the idea that you can just put smart people in a room and they will out innovate all the smart people who are not in the room, that's completely flawed. Yep. In an information age, the more people we get working together, the more cool stuff we get. And that's the, I think if there's anything for us to anchor on as a really, we would need to clip in on that point because that is ultimately, that has got to be the energy from which we manage all of the innovation and drive all of the innovation, the ethos of innovation in AI and machine learning and sensor systems and all the future information age stuff that's coming. It has to center on this economic principle. Yeah. We're no longer in the industrial age. We're no longer in the in the agricultural age, Bronze Age, or whatever. It's the information We're in a time now, information age. We should be solving for minimizing the cost and maximizing the sustainability the network of meeting everyone's well. basic needs. But then all of the additional things that we like, enjoy, and want to get and give to each other, those should be approached from a mentality of abundance. And the only other person that we haven't, someone's keeping a bingo card out there. The only name we haven't mentioned yet in this conversation is Eleanor Ulstrom mm. and the commons, right? Because we can talk about crowdsourcing all we want to, but then where the tension between crowdsourced anti-rivalrous generativity meets rivalrous extractive exponential return on returns capitalism, the crisis comes when they hit a commons because the anti-rivalrous will find the energy to maintain a commons, but extractive games and rivalrous games will come in, not extractive games, rivalrous games and finite games will come and say, I need to capture as much of the commons as possible. Yes. So if you commons as a finite resource, not as a substrate for generativity. And that is essentially the existential risk on open source human ecologies. You're absolutely right. And so I want to make this, you and I can get relatively abstract on occasion and I enjoy <laughs> that. I want to make this concrete with any example, which I think what you've done in your career, I, I think I, I look up to what you and, and Travis and Brian and all of you did at Continuum and now at Anaconda as very rich information about the intersection of open source and business and, and venture-backed startup land as well. So I'd like to, I, I don't necessarily consider all of VC uh, necessarily extractive, of, of course, but I do think there is definitely that element to it. So I'm wondering what the trade-offs are in working in the open source space and accepting venture capital and how that can inform the conversation we're having now. So on that cliffhanger of a question, we'll need to love you and leave you. But I do hope that you tune in for the next episode as Peter and I delve deeper into the relationship between open source software, the data space, tools, and venture capital. Data not as the new oil, but rather data as toxic nuclear sludge. The fact that data isn't real and what we really have are frozen models. The future promise of data science. Gifting economies with the finite game economics thrust onto them. And much, much more. Thanks for joining and see you then. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. 
I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.